Welcome to an inspirational message recorded live at Little Falls Christian Center. Forever we are students of your word and forever we bow down before you and we humble ourselves before you as we hand it over all to you. Asking you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, bless us with the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Open up the eyes of our understanding and glorify thy name for thou art worthy to be praised. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask this. And if you believe this, let's give the Lord a praise offering. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. You may all be seated. Sometimes you feel you just want them to keep on playing and keep on doing what they're doing because we've got a champion. And how powerful that is to know in the age and the days that we are in. I want to ask a question, but... Pastor Harold and more than all the apostles, you're not allowed to answer this. This is to the congregation. Who knows the oldest person who lived in the Bible? Anybody? The name, just the name. Yes. Yes, Methuselah. Well done, well done. If I had a chocolate, I'd give you one. Now, next question, and still pastors are not allowed to answer this one. How old did Methuselah? How old was he before he died? 900? I'm hearing 900? 969. I don't know who said that, but you're right. 969. So he was the oldest man in the Bible. But here's the real question. Here's the real question. If Methuselah was the oldest person in the Bible, how come it is that he died before his father? Because if he was the oldest person in the Bible, surely if he died before his father, his father should have been older than him, shouldn't he? And it's a fact. He did die before his father. Okay, it's a bit of a trick question. His father was Enoch, and Enoch was taken up into the heavens. But here's the thing about Enoch. It says in the Word of God in Genesis 5, there from verse 21 onwards, at 65, Enoch had a son. And from that moment onwards, for 300 years, he walked with God until God took him. At 65, for 300 years, he walked with God. Something must have happened with Enoch at that moment, at the age of 65, that it is said and written of him that, it's, that for 300 years he walked with God. And when you look at walked with God, in the Hebrew it means there that he had close fellowship and relationship with God. For 300 years he did that. So for anyone who's 65 years old, there's hope. <laughs> I'm not talking about having children, I'm talking about walking with God. All right? Just, just to clarify that. But what happened at the age of 65? And when Methuselah was born, listen to what the name Methuselah means. At his death, it shall happen. At his death, it shall come to pass. 
Now, you can imagine in that town or that city that Methuselah lived, that every time where he was, they were thinking, okay, when is he going to die? Because something is going to happen when he dies. Now you think they're holding out for 100 years, 200 years, and then come 500 years, and they're wondering, but what's going to happen? And now come 600, 700, 900 years. And eventually, in the same year that Methuselah died, the flood of Noah came. When he dies, it shall happen, his name. And what's interesting, right there in Genesis 5, God already points towards the future that through Enoch, who was raptured into the heavens, so the Lord is going to rapture the church before judgment would come, as it come, came in the days of Noah, before the tribulation. So the, the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation comes. 4,000 years ago, God already spoke of this. And we live in this time where it is so close and so near. But I want to add to this. In the book of Jude, the second last book in the Bible, listen to what is said of, of, of Enoch. It says here in verse 14, there's only one chapter, so you can call it, uh, sorry, only one chapter. You can call it verse 14 or uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Listen now, in addition to what Enoch did, Listen to what he said. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So not only did God use Enoch as a means of the rapture of the church, but now through Enoch who's prophesying, he's saying, but in the same way, Christ is going to come back with the saints. 4,000 years ago, this is what God spoke, and Enoch was the man that he used. Why this Enoch? Because Enoch had his eyes upon God. For those 300 years, he never took his eyes off God. That's why he walked with God in close fellowship and relationship. He had his eyes upon God. And I want to take us tonight to the foundational scripture that you find in Psalm 121. And I want to point out a few things in that particular scripture. For it says there in the first verse, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where comes my help. Behind me, you've got a picture of Jerusalem. And there you've got the Temple Mount where you're sitting on your right-hand side. Now, the Temple Mount is on Mount Moriah. At this time when these Psalms were written, 15 of these Psalms were written. They call this um, the Songs of the Ascent. 15 of them were written at the time when Israel was coming out of captivity, going up to Jerusalem. So when they said, where, and the Psalm is right here, I lift up my eyes to the hills, they were always looking towards where the temple of God was because that is where the presence of God dwells. They missed it. For 70 years in exile, they've missed it, and now they were longing for it. And when it said here, I lift up my eyes to the hills, the psalmist write exactly this, where are your eyes right now? Because eyes determine where the focus is, as it was for Enoch. Right now in the world where things are as they are, where are your eyes right now? Because where your eyes are, you will be able to answer the question that says, where shall my help come from? 
And then the question is answered in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I want to point out something here. When God says in his word here, our help comes from the Lord, it's a very specific name. And wherever and whatever God means to you, he may be the God of peace. He may be the God of salvation. He may be the God of love to you. But God specifically qualifies him here. And he says, the Lord, the Lord meaning Yod Hey, Vav Hey, Yahweh. Why that particular name? Because before the God of grace became known to you or me, before the God of love became known to you, you or me, he existed already as God Yahweh, the self sufficient, uncreated God. God now says, the one who's going to help us is the complete God. He, complete in everything, before even creation was made, he existed. And listen to what he says in his, his word, Isaiah 42 verse 8. Using that same name, the Lord, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. God knows his name. And that is the God who says he will help us. And when God says he will help us, we have to understand this. He's talking about a very specific creator because God is willing and is able to help. That is for sure. And through his ability that he aids and assists us, that comes through his power. And that power is, is, is available to us. And here's the question. If this is the God, the creator of heaven and earth that says He's the one that is going to help. Then we have to ask the question, can cancer really be cured? Can a drought really be removed and rain fall out of season? Can your debt really be canceled? Can your marriage really be destroyed? Can the economy really be lifted up? Can God place a godly government in this nation? Because if He is the God who says, I was there before all creation, this is nothing for God to do. But we disqualify ourselves because we lack in believing what we ask for and looking at this God who is Adonai Elohim in another translation. He is the fullness and the completeness of God. There is no one greater than him. He says here, I give my glory to no other, my praise to no carved images. Because Enoch got it. Enoch's eyes were fixed upon this God. He got to know Yahweh. He got to know this God. And the veil was lifted from his eyes. And if you really believe in God, in the hour that we stand in, God has lifted the veil from your eyes. One of my favorite, probably my top three favorite scriptures in the word of God is in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 and 18. And I want to read it and it's out of the message translation. And I want to say to you, listen to what God says. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 to 18. And I'm reading out of the, the message translation because this is what God did for Israel. But all of those who decided to fix their eyes upon God. He says here, whenever though they turned to face God as Moses did. God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. 
Comprehend this for a second. Face to face with our God. Verse 17. They suddenly recognize that God is a living personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We free of it, all of us, the word says. Nothing between us and God. Our faces shining with the brightness of His face. And so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like Him. What a powerful scripture. You and I, Becoming much like the Messiah, gradually more and more like Christ. So when we appear before the throne of God, His throne of grace, God sees Christ through us. He looks at us and He sees His Son. And therefore, because of Christ's righteousness in us, God answers all our prayers. God cannot but because of the ability that he has, he cannot but come through and help us because this is who he is. But that moment, we must understand when we ask God something, we must expect that God's gonna do it. We often ask, but we ask in vain. Kenneth E. Hagen often writes this. The greatest tragedy wherever he ministered was people would come and ask for prayer, but they did not expect the prayer to be answered. They did not expect it. How tragic is that? To not expect that the Lord is able to answer a particular prayer. P.C. Nelson was also a minister in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And at the age of around about 50, he was in a car accident. And the doctor said to him that you're going to lose your leg. We have to amputate the leg or you're going to walk with a stiff leg for the rest of your life. He refused to believe it and he got healed. And he started ministering and giving sessions and seminars on healing. And one of the ministers heard about this, and he was in the seminary with P.C. Nelson. And he was very upset about this new teaching about healing. And he took his whole family to visit one of these sessions. And that night when they got back from that session, um, uh, one of these healing sessions, he was very upset about what they were teaching. People standing in lines and being healed. This is not how, they, how they've been taught in the Baptist church at the time. He didn't believe in that, and his family was all agreeing with him. And the next morning when they were sitting around at breakfast, they were talking about the same thing again, and they were very upset about how men would go about and make this new teaching about healing. And his mother, who was living with him, said this, we may not agree with what he teaches, but do not criticize the servant of God. Lesson number one, his five-year-old son sitting at that table, five-year-old son said this to his father, dad, the way I see it, in our church, we pray for the sick every Sunday, but we don't expect anything to happen. This man, he does the same thing, but he prays for them in public, but he expects things to happen right there and right then. 
That is the difference. There was an expectancy that people were going to get healed. And P.C. Nelson taught this. This pastor started going to these teachings, learning why people getting healed. Because we expect that what we ask, it so shall happen. And it only takes a little faith. Luke 17 verse 5 talks about this parable about the, uh, the mustard seed. And we know it's the smallest of seed that becomes one of the greatest trees out there. But this is what God is saying. I can do with a little. I can do with a little faith. God says to all of us, I can work with little faith because little faith has the potential to become big faith. And we disqualify ourselves often here and be careful here because we look at other people that have walked the road for a long time and when we see how God moves in their lives and how God answers their prayers, we think this cannot happen to us and we disqualify ourselves. I tell you tonight, a little faith God can work with. God is willing to work with a little faith because that will become bigger and more and greater faith. And the proof is there in God's word. I want to go now to the next six verses in that same Psalm 121. We now have established who this God is that helps us. I want to show you now what God says He's going to do for you and me. How He helps us. God clarifies here. Just in verse 3, He says this. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Six times in this Psalm, the word keeps pops up. And in, in some translations, it talks about preserve. It's one and the same word in the Greek. It means God watches over you. He protects you. He's your personal bodyguard. That's what we get when God says he keeps. And yes, he says, first thing that he says, he will not allow your foot to stumble or to be moved. The foundation upon which all of us stand, if that is Christ, God will not allow our feet to stumble or to fall. That has to be your foundation. The rock of ages has to be our foundation because that is my security. I will not be moved if Christ is my foundation. If your foundation is Christ, from here on in, the Lord proves how he is going to help. He says he does not slumber or sleep. That, that, that means God doesn't rest. He doesn't take his eyes off any one of us. That is why we can say, where does our help come from? He's the God who doesn't take his eyes off any single one of us, irrespective of the season that we may find ourselves in. Verse 4 says this, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Very specifically, God points now, he who keeps Israel. Who is that? That is a covenant God. Because God covenants with Israel. That's why he's called the God of Israel. Our God is a covenant God. And God never breaks covenant. He never withdraws from any covenant. And if you think you're excluded, let me just highlight. You are included in covenant. Number one, there are many types of covenant. We celebrate that. Communion is one of those. Because when we celebrate communion, yes, we celebrate it. Because a price was paid. And therefore, the body of Christ was given as substitute for, for ours. And then a new covenant was sealed in his blood based on better promises. All of us, when we celebrate communion, we celebrate a covenant. Marriage is another covenant. And here's the thing about the marriage covenant. No matter how the world defines marriage, 
It doesn't matter what they define marriage as because if it is not the godly way, it is not a covenant. You can have your budgie marrying your TV. You can have your cats and your dogs being the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and that can be a marriage, but there's no covenant in that. The world can define whatever they want to, what marriage is. Yes, the point about the God kind of marriage. God says in His Word, it is between male and female. That's all. There's no etc. There's no addendum to it. God says male and female only. That's His standard for marriage. And then He says, this is covenant. Every other marriage outside of that is not covenant. What does covenant then mean? God says in his covenant, I bring all of me to this covenant. My blessing, my protection, my love, my provision. Every other marriage outside of that covenant doesn't have God's blessing upon it. God doesn't sanction that. Tonight, people are going to get baptized. That is a type of covenant because just as Christ went into the water, so we too die. And just as he was raised up from the water, so we are resurrected in him. It is written and it is said that we are raised into newness of life. You are not raised as the same old person into newness of life. And any person that ever, I've always taken this stance, any person who asks me about the baptism, all I say to them is, listen, if my Lord did it, that's good enough for me. That settles it for me. You want to argue about it? Go ahead. The Bible says, Jesus Christ, my Lord, he was baptized. He is the type. He is the example. I will follow his example rather than any other person's interpretation of what baptism should be like. That's the power of the God that we serve. God is a covenant God. Then we go to the next verse, and now he says, the Lord is your keeper. Now God makes it personal. He says, I'm your body God. I'm providing and watching over you because I care for you. The word here says, in the next one, in that same verse, it says, the Lord is your shade. When God says that he is your shade, that means he's your shadow. A shadow protects as God protects. A shadow is not separated from you, just as God is insepar insep well, inseparable from us. And then here's the thing about a shadow. A shadow can only be seen in light. There's no shadow in darkness. So if God's shadow is upon you, it is because you are walking in the light. And one of those men who walked in the light and whose shadow was upon him was David. You know, when David became ostracized from Israel and being pursued by, by Saul, 600 men came and they followed him. And these 600 men, they were, some of them were vagabonds. They were very upset about taxes that they had to pay. Um, children that they had to give to the kingdom, they were very upset about how King Saul was administrating the whole of Israel. So these were grumpy men, they were upset and they were rough. And God sent them all to David. And all they wanted, and this is why they loved David, because they knew this one, he's going to kill Saul. And the moment that he was in that cave, they said to him, God has given Saul into your hands. And the more they walked with David, the more they realized he is a different man. We want vengeance and we want the chains, but this man fears God. 
And they could see God was upon his life because every battle that they went to, they won and they were successful. And here's the thing, it is written in, in these battles, when they were getting ready, they were waiting for David because David with, would, with, would withdraw himself from them and he would spend time in the woods and he would be praying. And David would not come out until the anointing of God came upon him. And the moment that that anointing came upon him, they knew this battle is ours because that same anointing came upon them because the shadow of God was upon David. And they had success upon success upon success. And then rightly so, later in the word of God, David would write about these mighty men of his, what they did because of the anointing. And listen, you can find it in 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Corinthians 11. Jeshobeam, he killed 300 men. 300 men, okay, that may not seem much to some of you. 300 men, 300 men he killed. Eleazar, he was on a piece of land, all alone. All the Philistines came to him. The Israelite people, they all fled. He stood one man alone, and he struck down every Philistine that came his way. So much so that when he killed them all, his sword in his hand could not leave his hand. His hand was glued to the sword. That is the power of the anointing. God's not going to let something go if you need to fight with it. Then you had a man here, Adino the Esnite. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. He killed 800 people. These all men did this because God's anointing was upon them, because God's blessing and anointing was upon David, and he knew where his help came from. It says here the people came because they wanted to join this army, because they became fearful of this army, because they realized something very different was evident about David and his army. I mean, he had... Um, those who, 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 what they call it here, who, who sling a stone, they could do it with left hand and with right hand. They could shoot an arrow with a bow, left hand and right hand. Listen to what it says, 1 Chronicles eleven twenty two. Day by day, men kept coming to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. One man who choose to walk in the shadow of God, and that spills over and filters over to many others, and we know what happened with all the others as well. Verse 6 says here, it says here, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. God says here, his help means 24-7, I've got you covered. Not at night, nor at day, anything will happen to you. 24-7, there is protection for you from God. He watches over you. It doesn't mean that calamity and difficulty will not come in our lives. That, that is not what God says. But when it comes, God says, I've got you covered. Hezekiah knew this. He got a death sentence. And then he prayed unto the Lord. He humbled himself before God. And God said, 15 years I add to your life. Jairus had his daughter that died. But he knew God, and he went to ask him to come and pray over his daughter. Hannah was barren, and she was mocked by Elkanah's other wife. And in the end, she gave a son to the Lord, and he gave her more children. God will never take us beyond the limits, because there is a limit to hardship and difficulty. There is a limit to this. Why? Because all of that, the unlimited hardship and difficulty, fell upon one man on Christ, and he took it to the cross. And the word says, he became the propitiation of our sin. And I love what the word says it means. It means here, the wrath of God against sin was only satisfied when perfect, when the perfect sacrifice was paid. The perfect sacrifice was paid, and then God removed his wrath. 
And that perfect sacrifice was the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says this, The Lord shall preserve you from all evil, not some, all evil. God stands between you and I and, and, and Satan. Satan has to come past God first before he wants to come to you and I. Because God says, I will preserve you against all evil, not some, but all. That means all the authority that God has given to us, if we exercise it by faith, the enemy is powerless against us. Walk in that, in that faith, in that belief, and it is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, I will preserve your soul. All souls belong to God, not some, but all. Because he made us out of the dust. The body was made. He's, he blew his spirit in the nostril of man, his spirit, and then became a living being, a living soul. All souls belong to God, but not all souls choose God. And how, imagine for one moment how heartbreaking that is for God. That there are souls that are deliberately going to hell because they refuse to accept it. God cannot preserve these souls because they do not permit him to do so. They choose rather to walk in the ways of wickedness and not accept the offer of his son. But God says to you who believe, to us who believe, he says he will preserve our soul. And yes, the real benefit, if God preserves your soul, he preserves everything about you. Everything, nothing is excluded. Last one, verse eight says this, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Your coming in and your going out is your everyday life. God is the body God and watches over you in your going out and your coming in. Just as God looked after Israel, going out of Egypt, God was with them. Going into the promised land, God was with them. Just same for you and I, when we go out into this world, not being of this world, but in this world, God is with us. When we step into God's kingdom, God is with us. But God put something to this. Here it says, from this time forth, now, now it happens, even forevermore. Why would God use forevermore? Because God is all about eternity. God does nothing temporarily. God is all about eternity because at the cross, all eternity was sealed. The forgiveness of God, the punishment for sin, the sacrifice that was paid, then also the blessing, our names in the Lamb's Book of Life, the sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise, all of that is of eternal value. That is what God made available to us because God always has eternity in mind. I'm closing off with this. On the cross, our Lord Jesus, as he was hanging there, he looked up and he knew where his help was coming from because he said, my father, forgive them their sins because they do not know what they are doing. And before he died, once again, he would approach the father and he would say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He knew where his help came from. And on that cross, there were two men and one man asked the Lord to help him. And he said, help me that I may enter into paradise with you this day. It's never too late. It is never too late. This is what God does for us who believe in him. This is the kind of protection that he gives to all of us, even today and forevermore. No matter what this world throws at you, it can never, never supersede or overcome what God offers 
to each and every single one of us in terms of help. Amen. I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I really want to do this. I'm stirred in my heart to do this. I want you to think about this. On that cross, there were two people. Two people hanging on that cross. One of them was absolutely certain he was going to go to hell. But there's one who was crying out and asking for help. If you are on that cross this evening, and it would be your time, how certain are you that you are going to paradise with the Lord? How sure are you tonight that of you it can be said, today you'll be with me in paradise? If you are in any way uncertain, I would love to pray for you and I'd ask that you please raise your hand because we don't want any person to be unsure here. If you've never made the Lord Jesus Christ your Savior and never made that confession, I want you to please raise your hands because you are that precious and we will not see you over. We will not skip you because you are that important. If you want to make right with God, if you are at that last stage and you want to make right with God, Thank you, thank you. Please keep your hands raised. Thank you. If you are the one who needs to make right with God, this is your moment tonight. Thank you, thank you. Please do not hold back. Thank you, thank you. Please keep your hands raised because you are the VIPs tonight. I want to ask all of you who have raised your hands, please stand for me. Please stand for me. Never be shy. Please, you are so precious. Please. I want you to come to the front because we want to pray for you. Let's give them a welcome and let's give God a praise offering for this. Please come to the front, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. This is your moment because tonight you are going to know that there's no more doubt or uncertainty for you anymore. Please come to the front for me. Wonderful. Wonderful. God is good. God is good. And look, we've got these two young men. Let's bring them in. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Look at these young boys. A five-year-old son told his dad what it is to expect a miracle. We've got young men who's making a confession tonight. Look at me, all of you, please. Look at me, all of you, young men. I want you to look at me. Listen to me tonight. Listen to me. The Lord has paid the price for you. You will never in this life again walk with your head down because Christ in you, the hope of glory. He died for your sins so that you can walk in victory. No longer ever should you walk in a defeatist attitude. You are called by name. And tonight when you make this confession, you must know this. The heavens rejoice because your names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Let's raise your hands to the heavens for me. And I'm going to lead you in prayer. And I ask that you please repeat after me. And all of those here, please repeat this. It's always good for us to make sure that we also still are saved and doing the right things. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I come before you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I repent of my sin and confess that I am a sinner. The punishment of my peace 
was upon Jesus Christ. And by his stripes, I am healed. Fill me now, O Lord, with your Holy Spirit. And write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I forgive all people that have sinned against me. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give God a praise offering. Hallelujah. How wonderful it is. For more teachings like this and other material, please visit our website at www.littlefallsonline.com.